Hello and welcome to 99 from 99, the movie podcast where we take you back to the past and cover 99 films or more from the year 1999. I'm your stubborn Kentuckian host, Michael Denniston, joined every week by madman of the airwaves, Ben Zook. Why take a journey to the past? Well, perhaps like you, we've looked out our window and seen the world grow smaller, colder, and scarier. Not here. So sit back, relax, and come back with us to a time when theaters were full, tickets were affordable, and there were so many good movies, you couldn't possibly catch them all. That's what this podcast is here to do. So we hope you take the entire trip with us, 99 episodes on the films from 1999. you to hit me as hard as you can i'm scared to close my eyes i see dead people i believe you have my papler now that i've met you would you object to never seeing me again this is not just a couch it's just our couch take the red pill and i show you how deep the rabbit hole goes leave the light on after bedtime I always thought it'd be better to be a fake somebody, a real nobody. Are we gonna air it? Of course not. Not From Mike Judge, creator of Beavis and Butthead and co-creator of King of the Hill, comes a movie about people who go to work. Who are part of a team. And remember, next Friday is Hawaiian Shirt Day. Okay, but I could set the building on fire who respect their boss. We need to talk about your flair. Well, I have 15, 15 pieces on. 15 is the minimum. And need to escape. I don't like my job, and I don't think I'm going to go anymore. One of these days, I, I, I just I just kick this piece off. I'm thinking now it might be more fun to just get fired. And I've always wondered what that would take. Well, it looks like you've been missing quite a bit of work lately. Well, I wouldn't say I've been missing it, Bob. <laughs> <laughs> That's just a straight shooter with upper management written all over him. You haven't been showing up and you get to keep your job. Actually, I'm being promoted. Thank you, Bob. This is a, a suck. They're going to throw you out on the street so that Bill Lumberg's stock will go up. Ooh. It's completely unfair. Anatech deserves to go down. We're just the guys to do it. I'm not going to do anything illegal, Peter. Illegal? Samir, this is America. The worst they're going to do is they put you in a white-collar minimum security resort for a couple of months. You know they have conjugal visits there? I might be showing her my O-face. Oh, oh. Office space. Hey, this is a uh, yeah office space. I, I can say, I guess, with some measure of pride, that I was one of the the few, I guess, that was supporting this opening weekend. I went to see it with my my brother and uh, stepfather, who uh, both, uh, even more so, my stepfather than anyone else, was a huge Beavis and Butthead uh, fan, King of the Hill. So just Mike Judge in general uh, throughout the '90s. And so this is one that uh, was a pretty much an, an instant classic for me. And uh, I didn't have to wait around through the video store days to to already have some of those lines that uh, people have never seemed to grow tired of. So I'm going to toss it to you, uh, Ben. Is this one that uh, you caught up with late or were you there uh, early on for for Mike Judge's probably uh, magnum opus here? I mean, I do have to say I'm really impressed that you're saying that you saw this movie in theaters and you were actually a fan of it like in theaters, because I imagine for most people, it'll not that that will not be the case that I mean, this is one that I, I, from my memory, it just kind of came and went really quickly. And there wasn't much 
like positive buzz around it or anything. It was just another movie to that to you know to get dropped in the middle of of February or January or whatever. Um, and I didn't catch up with it until it was on TV, and and I thought it was hysterical. Um, and I remember telling people that you know that it was actually really good. Um, you know, uh, probably about six months after it came out in theaters and, and still getting kind of, kind of like, like looks of like, oh, oh, really? Really? Like, kind of like they had already, you know, um, been told that it wasn't a very good movie or whatever. Uh, and so it is interesting that this has happened twice in Mike, uh, Judge's career, uh, that, that he's had movies that are just barely a blip in in theaters and then essentially become true truly iconic uh you know of of the the era and of the year um i mean a a week did not go by um during the 2016 election that i didn't hear someone bring up idiocracy and, mm-hmm. and how it relates to like our current state of affairs and everything and and that's a that's a real testament uh to you know to to mike judge because Neither Office Space nor Idiocracy got any sort of support during their theatrical release from, you know, from my memory. Um, so I'm a huge fan of this movie. And I, and I was going to be truly shocked if that was not the case for both of us, um, you know, coming into this. Uh, but what was it like rewatching it? It's, you know, it's actually kind of difficult i think uh to, to get back in that, that headspace um because it feels like something i guess especially for me that's just always been around um mm-hmm. that the scenes themselves the the dialogue the jokes the gags um get referenced so much or they just pop up just through my daily life from people who you know it's not like someone i, I co-host a podcast with a movie podcast where we're going to be talking about movies at length where you kind of are more understanding when when references come up to other things we just can't help ourselves but i think mike judge it's just i think his very strange uh background especially for a a filmmaker and comedian and then i believe he was uh he did engineering work um, so he's, you know, worked with, uh, computer programmers. I mean, he's obviously doing the Silicon Valley show for HBO currently, uh, plays in the jazz band. Um, I did not know that <laughs> grew up, uh, he lived, I uh, lived and played in the jazz band, I believe in like the San Francisco area for a time. Uh, grew up, um, I think in, uh, New Mexico primarily, uh, lives in Texas. Like, so he's got the, the sort of the the redneck uh, friend group. I think he's just someone that is just a sponge for just uh, all sorts of strange characters. And he identifies with them in a way and he does it in a very, he does it in a warm way. I mean, obviously there, there are jokes here that are directed at in, in particular, the, the Milton character played by Stephen Root is for most of the runtime of the film, a, uh, a punching bag uh, for bad things to happen and to be looked down upon uh, and ultimately, he he's the, he, he's the victor. And I think that's what really works about his comedy and why people identify with it from all sorts of walks of life. That's why it became a cult classic. That's why Idiocracy still appeals to people now, even, appeals even more so, is that he just has this ability to have his finger on the pulse of people who generally, I don't think, see themselves reflected on screen. Mm-hmm. Um, and for, that's just the something- forgotten man. Yeah, that's just something that interests him and it ends up, you know, that's it makes his movies hard to sell to people, kind of like what you were saying, where it's like if you have to really push someone to see it, um, 
you know, I, I don't think the IMDb tagline here of three company workers hate their jobs, decide to rebel against their greedy boss. Yeah. And it stars a guy up to that point <laughs> who you would have had to have been a huge Swingers fan to really. Is this, you know, is this before Band of Brothers? I believe so. Band yeah, of Brothers so was it the following yeah. year. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, uh, it's calling card was Jennifer Aniston. Uh, and then <laughs> and, you know, she, and she's a supporting character. Too. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And it is, you know, is by no means uh, even attempting to be like a, a pure rom-com. Um, I love the way the romance is actually handled. This yeah. strange uh, shared passion for kung fu uh, and both hating their jobs. But, yeah, his movies are just a hard sell. And so it's it's probably unfortunate for him that he keeps coming up with films that tank horrifically at the box office and then gain and uh esteem later on but i have a lot of respect for his work and uh his viewpoint and the, the characters he presents on screen i mean i think he's found more success with tv because you know tv has that ongoing buzz thing if you didn't watch the pilot of silicon valley you know six weeks six weeks later someone is going to be telling you to watch the pilot mm-hmm. of Silicon Valley. And, and, you know, it's probably the same thing for King of the Hill. You know, if you didn't stay after The Simpsons to watch King of the Hill, you know, a year later, people are going to be telling you King of the Hill is funnier than The Simpsons and you're going to check it out kind of deal. Um, and, yeah, I really, I do, I I, <laughs> I think I think really the core of, of what I love uh, about this movie is the, um, the the characters of, of Milton specifically, and and the Bill Lumberg character played by Gary Cole, and and they're just both you know so incredibly quotable and and amazing, um, you know in their own ways. Hi, Milton. But, but What's I, happening? I, was, I, I didn't receive my paycheck this week. Um, you're gonna have to talk to payroll about that. I did, and, and they said, Mel, that- we're gonna need to go ahead and move you downstairs into storage B. No, we, I, I was told uh, I could have not- some new people coming yep. in, and nope. we need all the there's, space we can get. But there's no space. So if you could in- just go ahead and it, pack up your it, stuff it, and move it down there, but no, that would be terrific. I, I, I was told okay. I could stay. It, excuse me. Yeah, I, I believe you have my stapler. You know, you can say to someone if they don't, uh, if they're asking you to do something you don't want to do, you can go, yeah, I <laughs> I got to disagree with you there on that one. And then they know what you're doing uh, kind of thing. And same thing with, uh, you know, with Milton, you know, if someone asks you to, to borrow something you don't want to, well, I, well, I don't know. I don't, I, I like the swing line stapler and, you know, and you can do all that and people know exactly what, what you're doing. Uh, it's rare to see, um, characterizations and performances like that, that, you know, can be, you know, imitated by people and just remain, um, y- you know, in, the, can remain in the, like the zeitgeist of what, you know, people are uh, aware of. Yeah, the one I go to the most is uh, from uh, one of the Bobs, uh, played by John C. McKinley, where he talks about s- celebrating Michael Bolton's entire catalog. I've, I've found myself using that on movie podcasts when I'm talking about a, you know, like a David Fincher or something like that. And uh, some people will still, they'll still like instantly, they'll get where that's coming from, the, the meeting with some of the Bobs. But I think even like uh, the character, the neighbor, of mm-hmm. Lawrence mm-hmm. is a nice, you know, he's a nice cold splash of water for our hero of, of Peter, who, you know, a lot of his complaints, um, you know, this could get very, this could get very reality bites, I think, really quickly, 
where you could have the audience turn on the characters. Maybe it's even characters who live a lifestyle similar to them where, you know, if you're going to have your lead be someone who complains uh, quite often to open the film within the first 10 minutes about stuff that Mm -hmm. most people can say like, oh, yeah, I have to go through that work, too. Uh, It's a fine line between identifying with them and rooting for him, saying, yeah, that happens to me. And also saying, yeah, that happens to me. Get the fuck over it. And I think Uh the judge is really smart here because you introduce a like a neighbor who comes from a completely different walk of life and he's able to both. Uh, boost up Peter's sort of quest to do nothing uh, and also have a character uh, kind of point out uh, that his hopes and dreams are quite relevant to like his cousin who in his words don't do shit. Lawrence, what would you do if you had a million dollars? I'll tell you what I'd do, man. Two chicks at the same time, man. That's it? You had a million dollars, you'd do two chicks at the same time? Damn straight. I always wanted to do that, man. Well, what about you now? What would you do? Besides two chicks at the same time? Well, yeah. Nothing. Nothing, huh? I would relax. I would sit on my ass all day. I would do nothing. Well, you don't need a million dollars to do nothing, man. Take a look at my cousin. He's broke, don't do shit. So I I, I like that he is able to jab at his characters in this sort of loving way that I think it allows the audience to go back to rooting for them. It's like he kind of, he kind of undercuts them and maybe uses some of the same thoughts that an audience would have. Uh, but he gets the joke out of it. And then we move back on to, to Peter and, and root for his, his quest to do nothing. Yeah. I mean, he really, he really is the antithesis to everything that Peter is, despite the fact that they're friends and get along with each other. And, and that is very, that is very funny to think about. And it isn't, so they don't use any of his co-workers, uh, you know, to, to, to fulfill that role. It, it's just the guy who happens to live next door to him. Um, and there is a lot of interesting stuff going on here in terms of how they're building this protagonist because he is really tricky. Uh, he's a guy, it, it's possible that he could come off as really smug and like a jerk. As specifically in the middle of this movie, like there's a fine line between this guy and um, uh, Lou Bloom from uh, Nightcrawler, uh, the, you know, Jake <laughs> Gyllenhaal's role there, um, you know, and they're both kind of doing the same things in a way. Uh, and and so, you, you know, kind of like like keeping people rooting for this guy while at the same time, he's just not really giving a damn at a certain point. Um, you know, that, that that's tricky stuff. And I think the the romance also uh, is tricky because uh, Jennifer Aniston could easily have been the the character who's just there to to play the the nagging wife in a way uh-huh. or the the girlfriend because yeah she's the outsider uh, and and there's a very funny scene where he's attempting to explain to her uh, their their big plan their 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 Ocean's Eleven sort of hack their theft. So you're stealing. Uh, no, no, you don't understand. It's, uh, it's very complicated. It's, uh, it's, it's aggregate, so I'm talking about fractions of a penny here. And, uh, over time, they add up to a lot. Oh, okay. So you're gonna make a lot of money, right? Yeah. Right? It's not yours? Uh, well, it, it becomes ours. How is that not stealing? I don't think, uh, I don't think that I'm explaining this very well. Um, okay. the 7-Eleven, right? Mm-hmm. You'd take a penny from the tray. From the crippled children? No, that's the jar. I'm talking about the tray. The, the you know, the pennies for, for everybody. Well, those are whole pennies. Right. All right? Uh-huh. I'm just talking about 
fractions of a penny here, okay? But we do it from a much bigger tray, and we do it a couple of million times. I don't know, it just seems wrong. It's not wrong. Inatech is wrong. Inatech is an evil corporation, all right? Tchotchkes is wrong. Doesn't it bother you that you have to get up in the morning and you have to put on a bunch of pieces of flair? Yeah, but I'm not about to go in and start taking money from the register. Well, maybe you should. You know, the Nazis had pieces of flair, but they made the Jews wear. What? I really admire the way that's directed, and I, I really like the way Jennifer Aniston plays it, because she, she plays it, uh, the scene basically like, you know, explain it to me like I'm a four-year-old, uh, but she she calls him on on a shit that he is he's actually crossing into illegal territory. He's becoming a, a thief, and I I think it's because you know you brought up uh, even Lumberg earlier as far as being something that people can use like in the vernacular uh, as a joke with people. You know, and he's I guess the closest thing we come to just an out and out villain mm-hmm. in this film really. And even he's not you know he's not someone that is played like. A villain like we don't want to see him on screen anymore. I mean, he's he's allowed to just be really funny and goofy. I mean, he's someone that there are definitely shots fired at him uh, when Peter's playing Tetris and sort of redecorates his his office and gives himself a, a nice window view. Uh, but I don't think any of the characters here are so vile or you know so evil. They may be called evil, uh, but anytime they're on screen, you kind of enjoy hanging out with them. Even even the boss that our, our main character is trying to get away from so desperately. There is something really interesting in the deleted scenes um that I sent to you. I don't know if you checked it out or not. Um but there was a really quick one where they they establish that um and I'm sure everyone's seen this movie, so this isn't a spoiler alert really. They established that Lumberg died in the fire. And there's a quick line at the end of them just going, did any of you go to Lumberg's funeral? And then, you know, uh, Samir and Michael Bolton just go, oh, no. And that's it. Uh, and it's funny that they cut that out because I think, you know, they probably cut that out because they didn't want the movie to come off so cynical. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, while, even though Bill Lumberg is the typical boss who, um, you know, kind of know-it-all uh, authoritarian, uh, you know, figure. Uh, at the same time, people probably know Bill Lumberg's in their life, and even though they hate dealing with them and they, you know, fantasize about stealing money from, you know, their company and, and you know, scamming them or whatever, they wouldn't really necessarily want to see them die. Uh, and, and so it is. it was interesting for me to see some of the things that they held back on. Uh, just in that in that very quick five or six minutes of deleted scenes that was on the um, Blu-ray that I had. Um, and uh, back to you, Michael. Well, the closest it comes to making fun of uh, death is uh, what starts the ball rolling, which is this uh, hypno therapist. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's I mean, and that is that is it is funny. It's darkly funny, but I agree with you. I think that. Uh, having making a sort of throwaway, sort of pithy joke at the end about Bill Lumberg dying, uh, it taints, you know, our celebration of Milton out on this, you know, Caribbean island, uh, getting the wrong drink order with his his money that he found uh, upon setting fire to the place. Uh, it, you know, it taints us feeling good about Peter uh, working in construction and being happy with his life. Uh, I, yeah, I think it, it sends you out the door with the, that wrong feeling of like, uh, it's almost like how the, uh, you know, the Seinfeld family is mm-hmm. sort of so divisive because it's basically spent the entirety of its last hour 
uh, rubbing your face in the fact that you had spent almost a decade watching really horrible people and, and like rooting for them. And I mean, I always thought it was sort of a brave thing doing it. It's in keeping with Larry David's sensibilities, bringing him back for that finale. But I, I think that would have been totally wrong for, for Ava space. And I, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's hard to go back and say that cause I wonder how it played initially when it was in there. But yes, thing about now, I just think that's just, yeah, that's just not, not has no place in this world that the judge had built. Well, I'm going to go off on a tangent, I guess, here, uh, because this is, <laughs> uh, so we're going to veer a little bit farther away from office space. And I would, I, I, I try really hard to stay on topic because I, I, I pride myself in being the one person that you talk to that actually cares about staying on topic. Um, it makes the what, editing <laughs> easier for me too. <laughs> what I will say about the Seinfeld finale is that I think it would have been a much more pleasing, um, set of circumstances. I don't think the fans of the show minded seeing, um, you know, the Seinfeld, uh, crew get, you know, their comeuppance or whatever. Uh, I think, I think people minded that the last half hour of that finale was a clip show, basically. And mm-hmm. I think if they had written original material for all the people who came in to the witness box, that it would have been a much more successful finale. Um, and okay, it's getting back to office space. I, I also have one point on that. Yeah, though? go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> Do you think that's a that's a product of its time, where it's uh, you know, this is pre-streaming, pre-even really DVD binge watching? It's like I, I wonder if that's just that was just something that they didn't even consider because when it was really, I think finale was '98. If having that sort of clip show, if they were thinking like, okay, this is the way we have to put this back in here because people, it, it just wasn't common for you to just be able to pull up any episode at any point or prepare yourself for a finale well, like it is today. Seinfeld was better than that, though. They knew that the clip show had a stigma around it. They didn't have a single um, traditional bottle episode clip show like that before. They had had show, they had had retrospective uh, stuff where, where, you know, they edited a bunch of clips together, but they didn't have like, you know, in, in, in Golden Girls, um, you know, B. Arthur and Rose and, uh, Blanche, they'll be eating a cheesecake and they'll, oh, hey, remember that time we did that? Uh, or, uh, Family Ties, uh, t- way too many clip shows where they would have the, the family come together and talk about, hey, remember the time we did that? Seinfeld was better than that. They knew it. And I don't know why they made that decision to um to just cut back to all these different episodes that of course people are already familiar with. Uh the show was a huge phenomenon even up to that point. Um weird choice, but I but I really I actually really like the actual plot of that finale and I think if they they could even cut it down to like 30 minutes, it would be like a perfect um you know set of circumstances for what you would want to see with those people. Um we really Need to get back to office space, but I don't know how. Uh, relationships. I also like <laughs> how the girlfriend um, that he's initially seeing, we don't even need to see her initially. I think a lot of filmmakers and screenwriters would write at least one scene for the original girlfriend to be in, the one that's actually cheating on him uh, and everything. But it's kind of perfect that he just kind of says, oh, yeah, I don't know. We go out. But, I mean, sometimes I think she hates me and I think she's cheating on me. And that's fine. That's all you really need. Uh, there's even, uh, like, on a voicemail, she leaves a voicemail. And this has been the one thing that's always bothered me about this movie. Um, she leaves a voicemail where she says, oh, hey, what's the deal? You First, you uh, were totally weird at the 
the you know the, the the you know the guy who passed out the psychiatrist or whatever uh and then you just get out of the out of the car with and embarrass me in front of all my friends it's weird that we never see that it's weird that she just talks about it because it seems like a big choice for uh peter but we never see that actually visualized in the film I'm just going to point out that you missed your opportunity for a perfect transition because she is, I believe, Schmoopy from Seinfeld from the infamous uh, Soup Nazi episode. Oh, yeah. Uh, so there you go. <laughs> um, yeah, that, I mean, I think that's fair. But, you know, that uh, her answering machine uh, send off always gets a laugh for me uh, pointing because I, I do imagine uh, how everyone else would react. And that's that's the one thing that really interests me in, in stories and in film. We did a um, we did a podcast on uh, demolition uh, and I was a little more positive on it than most that I listened to because I, I said that I really liked uh, stories about how people deal with grief, in particular, if they're dealing with something in a, in a way that is not palatable uh, to to social norms. And so the idea of this guy of of the hypnotherapy actually working and him being in this calm place, this like, you know, being out fishing or whatever, like just totally relaxed. Uh, while while death uh, is right there in front of him, uh, always gets a laugh from me. I, I don't. I, don't I, I think I prefer it uh, as the answering machine, as the the answering machine that is so loud that it it shakes around on the desk as she she screams at him. But I think it's a fair point. I mean, you could you you could play it one way or the other uh, um, there. But you, so you bring up an interesting point uh, about the the therapy, and I wanted to ask you about this. Because this is something that came up with me uh, rewatching Office Space this week. Do you think that the therapy actually works, or do you think it's a placebo effect? Um, I mean, I think it actually, I think it actually does work. Um, uh, the way it's executed, the the way that he reacts, he does have a line where he says something about it, you know, wearing off or something like, or it's like he has some sort of line. I, I can't remember it now. Where he's even he kind of questions it. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to think that it, it does work. I, uh, the reason, I guess I think I, I just prefer it that way because I like the idea of this woman who has pushing him to do this, to get him, to shape him, to be the guy that she wants him to be. And it actually takes, and it freaks her out. Like, it, it's almost like she, even she didn't buy into this bullshit. Um, mm. but when it, when it actually works on him, that just angers her more that for, there's something that she just doesn't understand about this guy that he's, he's res- receptive or responding to something that she can't understand. So I guess that's, I choose to believe that it, in that moment, it does work in the short term on him. I, I mean, I, I see it as a placebo effect because it's like, he just sees a guy keel over in front of him. And, and I think subconsciously he just thinks that, oh, we're all going to die someday and I'm living my life as completely subservient to all these things that I don't really want, that I don't really care about. Um, and, and, and I think later he says something like that. He says, seeing that fat man keel over like that, uh, you know, really had an effect on me, uh, kind of thing. And I think that explains the wearing off, um, effect because it's like, oh, I, if I do just live exactly like this, there are going to be real consequences to, to my actions. I'm not going to get away with every single thing, um, you know, that I'd like to. And we haven't brought it up, but this is one of three, uh, major movies from 1999 that are examining the sort of 
the overratedness of uh, the of middle class morality, mm. and, and I guess the other two would be American Beauty and Fight Club. And you can argue with me about whether or not you think I'm right in, in regards to that. But it does seem to be a big theme that permeated throughout movies in 1999. Um, certainly, American Beauty was a huge phenomenon, and Fight Club was a huge phenomenon in the same way that Office Space was. That it was a cult classic uh, that people discovered later. Um, and I don't know. Why do you think that is? Why do you think it, that at the end of the century that people are suddenly reexamining, um, their middle class lives and whether or not, uh, cause it's, cause, cause it's, we come from it from, from a completely different perspective today because the job that Peter has here and Samir and Michael Bolton have, um, that's the new American dream. Um, yeah, people would kill for that now. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it is funny to watch it because, uh, yeah, there's an entirely uh, new generation coming up that I, I am legitimately wondering if you introduce Office Space to them, if they react with aggression uh-huh. towards his crew uh, for for really dismissing the the dream job that they have, like <laughs> the fact that. You know, yes, he he may not have one that is creatively fulfilling, but uh, as evidenced by the interview he gives the two bobs, he does, in his words, like 15 minutes of work or something, like a week or like a legitimate hard work. Uh, yeah, I think most people would think like, I'll I'll take that gig, um, and just just put up with just the 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 over management, just nod your head and then go back to playing Tetris on the screen or playing with your phone now. Um, I, you know, I think it's, I don't have like anything groundbreaking to say on it, but you know, two years after this, uh, there was going to be an entirely different concern, um, from most Americans. And when we entered into the, the Bush presidency, uh, proper with, uh, the attacks 9-11, I, I think the headspace went totally, totally different, you know, area. Um, things were pretty good. Uh, economically for this this country, especially ninety nine. I mean, this was uh, people were feeling pretty mm-hmm. good, especially in the middle class. And I think they, you know, they were they were looking for other challenges, uh, you know, of, of happiness. I guess with American Beauty, it's it's uh, trying to fuck, uh, you know, the the teenage girl, I guess. Um, and then Fight Club, <laughs> it is it's trying to tap into the fact that. Uh, having a very office space like job, men no longer feeling like men mm-hmm. wanting to. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I do. I think it's actually it's a very good thing, uh, and it's strange that these movies are still so well regarded. Uh, in fact, with just you mentioning those three, which were the ones that I was thinking of, um, you know, American Beauty is the best picture winner, but it's probably the one that you would say is like the bronze medal now, as far as tapping into pop culture. I feel like Office Space and Fight Club surpassed it as far as. Uh, esteem or just a point of reference for people in pop culture. But uh, yeah, if those had come out, you know, they, they just wouldn't have had a shot in 2002, three, four. That just, I just don't, you know, this is like the perfect time period. This was the, the peak to be tackling these middle-class uh, issues of drudgery and uh, lack of fulfillment. But I, yeah, uh, shortly it would have been gone. I don't know if I would agree with you on that sentiment of, of American Beauty being the bronze medal. Um, I, I, I think fondly of all three of these movies and there might be more. There might be more that we're not really, uh, thinking about in terms of this, you know, examination of middle class morality. Um, and it would be interesting to see 
if there's any others that, you know, are kind of subtly, uh, and, and, you know, there's probably 20 movies from 1999 on our list that, that I haven't seen. So maybe some of them, uh, you know, take this on as well. I don't know. I mean, you could make a case for something like election, uh, you know, the matrix, I guess, if you want to get into sci-fi territory, uh-huh, uh-huh. you're just taking that yeah. origin story. Matrix. I can see. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, yeah, I don't know if Notting Hill counts. Uh, <laughs> lowly bookstore the exam- owner. examination of uh, <laughs> celebrity lifestyles and then whether or not they're worth it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know, but no, I'd say there's uh yeah, that, that's certainly something that's gonna come up. But those are probably the big three uh, from this list. Yeah, sure. I mean, do you think uh, like if you have uh, you know a college age kid coming up, or are they gonna respond to this as uh, strongly? And if they are responding to it strongly, is it something that is uh, is it like a I don't know like an Animal House that when they come to it, they already sort of know some of the the famous lines. Like it's just it's too big of a comedy for them to to escape. So I'm wondering if you think uh, newer generations can give this an honest appraisal at this point. I mean, I have tried so hard not to socialize with people of the newer generation <laughs> that it, it, it's very hard for me to say. I would like to think that there are people who are intelligent enough to look at this and, and just see it from the point in time that it was made. Uh, and, and there are still there are still lessons and life observations that I think apply today, but definitely no one no one looks at a mid level office job and thinks to themselves, man, it would just be a shame if that's what I'm doing. Um, <laughs> like people really don't, people really don't, and unless they're like privately wealthy, you know, um, you know, people really don't. And so yeah, I could see that being a hurdle. I still think it'll, you know, it would definitely be something if I was going to give it to my youngest, youngest brother, he would definitely prefer this one to, uh, I was just looking at our list, uh, Mumford. <laughs> you know, I, I, have, I haven't go seen with... Mumford, so I really don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I think you'll dig it. Uh, I look forward to talking about that one with you. That's, that's far down the list, but, um, yeah, I, I think it's something that it's, uh, it was, it captured that, that zeitgeist, uh, pretty quickly, which I, I don't know. It'd be interesting. To look at the numbers, but I was, uh, I was just going over the IMDb trivia, and apparently they, they referenced some Entertainment Weekly interviewer where uh, they asked, I guess, some some studio executive about running numbers on DVD sales or video sales. And uh, it's like he discovered the office space was one of the more financially successful uh, properties during that interview. Like he was like running – just running numbers just to give them like, oh, yeah, here's you know what we made on this or is that. This has done very well for us. And it's like he was shocked, shocked and maybe appalled that Office Space was like their, <laughs> their top earners. I, I, uh, so that's the thing is that ultimately, you know, these – and it's, that's the same. That has remained the same from 1999 until now is that these, you know, film city executives and everything, um, they do not – care if something is uh successful in one market versus another they they really do just want to keep churning out the marvel movie crap over and over again because it continues to make money um it would i think it's really dumb that we don't have some sort of tracking to see what is doing well on you know streaming or on video rentals or whatever uh, because, you know, the the new office space or whatever could be happening right now, but we're not aware of it because mm. we're not even we're not even there's no way to quantify that that kind of success right now. 
And, and I, it's, I find it really frustrating. I find it personally frustrating that, you know, when I talk about Captain Fantastic or whatever and tell people how much I love it and everything, there's no way for me to go online and see if, if that's a movie, a title that people are now picking up and checking mm. out now at a, at a greater frequency than they were when it was in theaters. I mean, I, I think uh, Netflix definitely wants to protect their, their algorithm. <laughs> because it's like it's certainly you know they they're able to uh to put out there the idea that uh, stranger things uh was one of the most successful properties from last year but who really fucking knows yeah uh, yeah they just keep shoving it down our throat i don't know if people we, actually watch or not we've examined all the data and we've determined that all of our properties are very successful and very <laughs> yeah. popular with people <laughs> yeah um, I don't, I don't know. I guess it takes a cancellation for, for us to uh-huh. be like, Oh, I guess Marco Polo didn't hit <laughs> with the Netflix audience. Took $150 million <laughs> to learn, to learn that. <laughs> um, but no, I don't, I don't think we've got, uh, got anything else, uh, other than, uh, I guess we need the, the honest appraisal of the old, uh, video store days to know when something mm-hmm. was, uh, was turning over in the uh, rentals. Um, but yeah, uh, Office Space uh, remains a classic. I was, you know, watching it. I didn't have other than what we talked about as far as just that 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 wonder on what newer generations think about the the lament of Peter and company in this film. Uh, it still works as a piece of entertainment. I'm, I mean, I'm still laughing at it mm-hmm. uh, over well over you know almost two decades later. So yeah, it is a legitimate classic. And uh, no complaints after message in a bottle uh, watching <laughs> Office Space. I was happy to get this one. Uh, do you have? Do you know what's next? Do you have the list in front of you? It is October Sky. Okay. All right. A film I have not seen. So That'll be very interesting because it's a Jake no Gyllenhaal movie and you love Jake Gyllenhaal. I, I'm a big fan. <laughs> and uh, it, it looks like this one uh, tripled uh, the gross of Office Space. So we're getting back <laughs> into big box office territory <laughs> for 1999. Uh, yeah, October, October Sky, Sky will be a very interesting rewatch for me because I did see it in theaters. Um, and so, yeah. Um, that's all I'll say about that. I'm a showman. I don't give away my opinions right away. And I uh, so. I passed on the opportunity to see it. I actually still remember uh, trying to convince my buddy uh, to go see. I was really excited to watch Ed TV, and they were doing a preview of it. But you had to watch like the 7 p.m. Saturday night showing of October Sky, uh, and he just would not be convinced to sit through two movies. Uh, October Sky is the the opener to to get to Ed TV. So that that's my only memory of October well, Sky. History history run. has judged that dichotomy very <laughs> very poorly. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, we'll eventually get to uh, to Ed TV as well. But yeah, next week we'll be talking about October Sky, and uh, it does my heart good to see uh, Laura Dern on the poster of a film. Uh, so ninety nine truly she, missed time period for me. She reached the big time with that one. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I just hope she's. Uh, can you give me a slight spoiler? If she, please tell me she's not playing someone's mom in this one. No, no. Okay, thank God. All right. <laughs> I mean, she might be someone's mother somewhere. But she's not Jake. Uh, mom. No, no. Okay. All right, good. <laughs> okay, thank God. All right, so that's what we'll be talking about uh, next week. So uh, hopefully you'll be back for that one. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. A real gangster-ass nigga plays his cards right. A real gangster-ass nigga never runs his fucking mouth because real gangster-ass niggas don't start fights. And
And if you'd like to continue the conversation with us, feel free to do so on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook at 99from99. And everything's cool in the mind of a gangster, because gangster-ass niggas think deep. Up 365, yo, 24-7, cause real gangster-ass niggas don't sleep. And all I gotta say to you, wanna be, gonna be, cocksucker, pussy, pranksters, is when the fire dies down, what the fuck you gonna do? Damn, it feels good to be a gangster.